Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters that are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coulte and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. With nearly 30 years in the game, Slam have weathered pretty much every trend that's passed through electronic music. Stuart McMillan and Ord Mikkel cut their teeth with residencies at Glasgow venues like Tin Pan Alley before playing their first gig at the city's famed Sub Club in 1989. After scoring a breakthrough hit with Positive Education in 1993, the duo released Daft Punk's first records and established their label, Soma, as one of Europe's most reliable outlets for dance music. Fast forward 20 years, and Soma is still going strong. The label recently released its 400th record, and the milestone single came from Slam themselves. These days, their empire also includes radio, TV, and a production school. When I spoke with them in London, Macmillan and Mikkel spent some time looking back on their career today, while also casting an eye to the future, with a new album set for release in October. Black Market, the Thursday night party you guys started in the late 80s. Can you tell me about how that, that came to be? Well, I met Ord at a place called Chimichungas, which was a, a kind of Mexican bar that we used to work in. And we used to fight to play the music. And Ord had been at Sheffield uh, University and came up to, to Glasgow. And I, I didn't know anyone else that had the same taste in music as I did. And we just kind of got together through basically the love of music because at that point there wasn't really the DJing thing wasn't the kind of phenomenon that it is now it, it, it was very much kind of nobody really aspired to be a DJ as such but Orb was the only other guy I knew that had decks and wanted to be a DJ so that was really our first night we got together with a guy called Dave Clark not the DJ Dave Clark so Slam has always been three kind of people Dave has always been the guy in charge of running nights and the three of us got together I think the only night we had was like a Wednesday or a Thursday at that time. It was a sort of bit of a giant leap of faith at that point because, you know, nobody was really, nobody outside the established people were kind of doing things. So we, we opened this Thursday night and, you know, within a couple of weeks it was kind of almost full. We were playing everything at that point from sort of old disco to early house to a bit of funk stuff. Uh, just stuff that we, we really enjoyed, you know, listening to. You said that Glasgow at this point in time was very much a rock-oriented city. When this night started, was that starting to, to shift a bit towards dance music? I think there'd always been a small underground scene for, for club music, but it was very small at that point because most of the nightclubs were sort of just big discos effectively. You know, you wouldn't really want to venture in there 
you know, it's quite a scary <laughs> prospect going to a Glasgow nightclub at that point. So there was little little places like the sub club, which is obviously still going just now, and places like Maestros and very, very, very small scene at that point. There always has been a, a strong dance backbone in Glasgow, you know, even from bands like Joseph Kay and the, all the postcard stuff, you can really hear a kind of dance influence in the music. So people have always loved dance music in Scotland, you know, but at that point it was a very underground scene, very small. It was at a stage where you've, you've got Black Market up and running and you said that you started to, to get a decent crowd. Did you start to get a bit of a loyal crowd, people returning even in those, those early days? Very much so, very much a loyal crowd. It was like a lot of people we knew from, we lived in the West End of the city. So it was like a lot of people from the West End, a lot of people who worked in the bars and a lot of people that we knew from working in the pub ourselves. And yeah, it was pretty much the same faces every week coming down. And... Were there any of like the major kind of Detroit guys coming over to Glasgow at this point, or was this still still this to come? This was like this is kind of pre-Detroit, really. I mean, I think that there was one record kicking about at that time that we used to hear about, which was uh, Derek May's nude photo, and that was like a really pivotal moment actually, because when we heard that record, it was like, whoa, what's this this the sound? You know, we, at, at that point, you would go to some place like the sub club, and there's a guy called Graham Wilson who was effectively a soul DJ, was playing, and then this record would come on. I used to go, what's that record that sounds like it's been made underwater or like it sounds like it's been made from out of space or something? I said, I need, I need to track that down and need, we need that record. So then when we tracked that down, we started to find other things that sounded like it or, the, you know, st- other things that were coming out on Transmat label, Chicago stuff. We started to find other records that were on that tip because at that point, House was just starting to break, but it was very... It was weird because house wasn't getting played in underground clubs. Even in London at that point, house music was very much a, a thing you would hear in a commercial. It was like Jack the Groove and Love Can't Turn Around and things. It was a very, you'd hear those in the more commercial clubs. But so it wasn't really a cool thing to, to play house music or kind of try and track that music down. But we in- instantly fell in love with it. And, you know, that eventually led us to going on to do um, Slam at uh, Small club called Tin Pan Alley upstairs was a bit of a glitzy disco and downstairs was like a 200 capacity acid house club you know I wanted to ask you about Tin Pan Alley those nights were were pretty legendary by all accounts can you paint me a picture of how that started and what it was like it was very very small I think the first week we had like 100 people nobody really knew what what we were doing at that point they come in and was like there was the glitzy club upstairs which the people who went to the glitzy club could come down if they so wished but the the thing was it was very glitzy mirrors everywhere which we covered with banners uh, the place was full of smoke we had people dancing on podiums like Dot Allison from you know One Dove was, was there she was like she was a podium dancer for a while uh, and you know it was just it was great it was really raw kind of almost anti establishment if you will because nobody would ever have thought about going to a club like that nobody would ever have ventured into this club that that had any clubbing credentials we never thought oh let's go to Pant so we wanted to just choose a venue that said this is year zero effectively this is something different that we're trying to do I think it only ran for about three or four months but it has that kind of little bit of legendary status within the scene you know It's, it's like all these things they never run for any great length of time and so after Tim Tim Pan Alley, there was Tramway Theatre. 
Yeah, Tramway was like an event we did in, in sort of in conjunction with the Hacienda because we'd been taking little trips down there to go and, you know, just check it out. It was, you know, we were almost like too far away from London to see what was going on. So we would go down to, you know, the hot night and a Wednesday night and eventually we, we ended up playing in there a couple of times. And so we decided to do this event in the Tramway, which is like a 2000 capacity venue. But at that time seemed massive. And we decided to bring some coaches up from the Hacienda. I think Inner City, which is Kevin Saunderson's band, played live. A couple of Hacienda DJs and us, 808 State, played live as well. And we did, uh, we had this situation where we had the PR for it was like five weeks to go, four weeks to go, three weeks to go. And nobody knew what it was. It was in the papers, like, you know, people were making up things. The papers were making up things. What's what's going on? It's, what's, what's happening? And so the hype... It got blown out of proportion. And so instead of 2,000 people turning up, I think about 6,000 turned up and there was like a roadblock in the street and it was just the police came and it was it was just mayhem. And I think we all went out to Ibiza the next day and I went out to Ibiza thinking, is this the end of the career? But I, I didn't realise that if more people want something, then they can actually get it then, you know, so it was actually just the beginning of the career. It was mayhem. So how long after that did you start playing at the sub club? Because that was 1989 when you... Pretty much that was a bit of a stepping stone because I think, like I mentioned earlier, there was a bit of a a, a sort of cultural year zero and this was definitely something new that was happening. When we started doing that, it, it was at the kind of advent of Acid House. So I think we'd... At that point, the Saturday night that was existing at the sub club got a little bit quieter. We got a little bit busier. They asked us to come in and we played there for probably about three or four years. And that was our start of our Atlantis nights, which was uh, another great <laughs> residency, you know. And was that just you guys DJing or were you inviting people to come and play? Well, we had the odd guests. We had people like Derek May come across. We had um, maybe one act, because I can't, I can't remember now. It's, it's Bobby Condors came and played. People like Andrew Weatherall would come up. You know, but mainly the guest thing was secondary, wasn't it? Or it was there was it was mainly a residency for myself and Orton Harry, you know, who's still at the sub club. So it was just the three of us, and the music was very underground house and early Detroit kind of stuff. So you've described sub club as your spiritual home. Would you say it was you even had that feeling in those early days, or is that something that developed over time? It, it was one of the first places we went clubbing, so there was always that aspirational element to it that one day we would maybe play in here and one day we would maybe do our thing so I think it started with that and then it was Year of Culture 1990 we had a sort of residency in there we were doing the Saturday night Atlantis but we were also doing the Thursday and the Friday night and the Sunday we were playing in there four nights a week at that point so we spent half the weekend there like DJing you know till six in the morning kind of every night so for that reason alone it just it, you know by default became our spiritual home so it's just a home as well as a spiritual uh, well, home at yeah, some point like, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you guys started Soma in 1991 yeah what were your reasons for, for starting the label for starting a label uh, I mean, obviously, uh, we were still kind of part-time with the kind of DJing and clubbing. We were still working in bars, and we were buying these tunes that allegedly were made in people's bedrooms, and it was quite a kind of natural move towards wanting to kind of make your own music. 
of a similar kind of ilk. And we had two friends, Jim and Glenn, who were engineers and, and had a bit of equipment, you know, some samplers and, and what have you. And another chap had a kind of kind of makeshift studio in the basement of his flat. And so over, you know, a few nights kind of drinking and stuff like that, the, the idea came to, to maybe venture into the studio to try a hand at trying to, you know, put a, a tune together, a couple of tunes. And uh, Jim and Glenn were kind of thinking about starting their own band and, and what have you. And we, we tried to make kind of certain inroads into the music establishment in Glasgow, but it was very early days for for, for that type of music, you know, the, the, the dance scene. And to be fair, we came across quite a few kind of closed doors, people just weren't interested, didn't understand it, didn't see the possibility of making any money out of it. So there was generally kind of no no interest at all. So we'd always kind of been into the kind of DIY kind of punk ethic and the idea of kind of controlling your own destiny and, and, and decisions about music and, and not making music with the end kind of result of being a pot of money. The idea was just, you know, to to have your music out there. So we went into the kind of studio and, and obviously, you know, with a few doors being kind of closed and being into that DIY ethic, it seemed quite a natural kind of path to follow to start your own kind of record label, you know. So number of meetings went on and many coffees were drunk and, and, and pizzas eaten. We came, we came up with the the name of Soma and went into the studio and, and tried our hand. And our first single was Eterna. And the B side of that, or the double A side, should I say, was a track called IBO by Rejuvenation, who, who were Glenn and Jim, the two engineers. And we all, you know, trooped down to London and, watched it being cut in a cutting plant on a lathe and we're all kind of you know excited about being able to kind of physically touch your first records and we pressed up about a thousand and uh, sat with stickers and ink ink pens and, and wrote numbers on them and you know limited to a thousand and sent them off and they went off to quite a few kind of independent record shops across Britain you know Eastern Bloc in Manchester and and down to some of the more experimental kind of dance shops in in London Black Market and stuff like that and those thousands sold out really quickly so from the profits of that we pressed another thousand and and you know I suppose the rest you would say as a cliche is, is history you know you were met with a lot of closed doors initially was that from approaching established labels in the in Glasgow or? that's right well all people who were just genuinely kind of involved in the music scene I think uh, it's fair to say that a lot of the kind of infrastructure within Glasgow was towards kind of the big rock bands and and rock music you know uh, simple minds and, and and other kind of bigger bands that came out of Glasgow and this new dance thing was was very kind of underground you know that's I think a lot of people didn't really understand it and some of the people that were involved in it were a bit uh, in the uh, the established music scene in Glasgow were a bit older they didn't really club and and so it was just a general kind of I can't see any future in this I, I certainly don't see any money in it you know you're you're on your own now and you said that those thousand records shifted pretty quickly. Was that a, a surprise to you? Absolutely. I think, you know, whenever you're putting out your own music, you're never sure about how it's going to be accepted. It, we were 
all novices to the the music scene and how records sold and when you got the money back and so it was like a real kind of steep learning curve to be honest um but fortunately for us you know that the, the record got picked up by a lot of kind of other djs across the uk and i think even a few copies probably slipped across the atlantic to america and stuff like that and and we followed uh, uh eterner up soma one with another band called one dove which uh, stuart alluded to dot allison being the lead singer of and that came out pretty quickly on the back of the first single and that picked up a kind of different audience you know that was kind of slightly more kind of downbeat and they were a band had a singer and they ended up getting picked up I think by Pete Tong for London Records and went on to have a very successful career there and you know a couple of singles down the line Positive Education came out and that was really our kind of global calling card Positive Education that came out in 1993 how much did that track affect your profile? Massively I think our first couple of visits into the studio we we were kind of doing a few remixes at that point as well and we hadn't really found a sound or a style that we could that we really wanted because we you know we really were concentrating everything it was all about Detroit we wanted to have this authentic Detroit sound. We wanted to, but we also wanted to make the sound our own. We didn't want to have that. Um, we wanted to somehow have this kind of Detroit Glasgow kind of hybrid sound. And when we made Positive, we we knew, you know, I think the whole initial idea of Positive came in about thirty minutes. We had the the bare bones of the track. We had everything written, and we knew then that we'd hit the nail on the head so it was a pivotal moment for us not only you know the first record that we made I mean people see it as a kind of classic record or something but you know I can hear things in it that aren't right for me but when I listen back to Positive I'm pretty much we spent so much time as I said 30 minutes uh, getting the initial idea together but I think we spent another two weeks or something like procrastinating and kind of fixing things and just making sure that there was no imperfections and, and at that point we were running with an Insonic ESP like sequencer, you know, like a, a keyboard. Uh, and that was doing all the sequencing and it crashed continually. And it was, you know, we were up against it, like technically at that point. But we really spent the time on that record and really spent the time getting everything right. And was this production side of things working hand in hand with your, with your DJing? For example, you know, were you kind of testing tracks like Positive Education out before they were released and gauging the reaction? Do you know what? It was actually really, really hard to, to do that at that point because you had to... To do that, you would have to have played like a da, unless you made an acetate or, you know. So really, the, the, the short answer to that is no, because we just had to have, a you know, faith in the track. And then when we had, I remember we got the acetate and we took it to, we went to uh, LA and then we went to a place called Boogie Buffet in San Francisco. We were over doing a couple of gigs over there and uh, spending a bit of time over there. I remember playing it like in the morning in, in this weird club in San Francisco and everybody just going nuts. And that was one of the first times we'd ever played the record, you know, and, and it was quite an incredible reaction. I actually remember dropping it the first time or it being dropped in the sub club. I think before we took it to LA, we actually dropped it in the sub club beforehand and it was the acetate. It just arrived that week and it was an absolute instant reaction. I mean, the, the club just went absolutely nuts, hands in the air, chanting. And it, obviously when it's your own record and you've only ever heard it, over and over on a loop you know through a big desk and stuff like that you just you can't really equate it's what you hope for and what you wish for but uh, I gotta say it 
you know, it really took took my breath away to see the reaction. You know, it got, and as Stuart said, a, a similar reaction was was evoked in San Francisco. So, you know, on the initial plays, we thought, oh, you know, maybe people will quite like this one. And it made it into the the UK charts as well. Was that right? I think eventually, when it was it was picked up again, never never sleeps that record. It always it always comes back. It's the weird thing. It's one of the only pieces that we've done that that hasn't somehow dated in any way. I think it just has that such a classic sound. You know, I know now that that music has that, you know, that people are striving for that authenticity or that sound where the, the hi-hats have to be a certain way. And I think it's just always had that. It's never a record that's kind of gone out of fashion. So it was picked up by London Records. Uh, there's Somebody made some horrible trans bootleg thing and, you know, uh, Andy Thompson from London Records going, oh, well, we need to sign this uh, record, but we need to get, like, we need to get this trans mix. I was like, no, I- I'll stop you because we're not going to do that. That's not, I said, we could do the record. We'll do a remix. I can't remember who else. I think someone, someone like Carl, uh, they, they needed a big name. So could someone like Carl Cox did another mix and they brought it out and yeah, it got in, uh, it was number 39 midweek or something. Which for an underground record like that is quite incredible, really. Were you selling Soma records over the phone at this at this point as well, like in the early days of the label? Very hand to mouth at the beginning. It was very much where the studio was in a tall white house in, in, in Glasgow. We were kind of working from there. And eventually we kind of, at that point, we'd moved to, to an office. A guy called Richard Brown came on board as, as the label manager and things started to form, take a much more professional kind of um thing we had going on so it was it was much more together after it's a learning curve if you've never done a record label it's going to take you at least a year to kind of suss out who the good distributors are who the good people are to work with etc so it it took a little bit of time but um pretty quickly we got we got on it and but that's around about the time with daft punk and you know started to gravitate towards us well it wasn't long after positive education came out that you you put out the the first single from from Daft Punk. Can you tell me the story about how how that record well, came out? We went to DJ a, a thing in just outside Paris and Euro Disney, in fact, and we were introduced to the guys. I, I just remember these two little French guys just always been there in the background, like kind of walking around behind us, and they're thinking, "These guys, they make music. These guys, oh, okay, right, they make music. Okay, yeah, they, they're fans of your record, positively. Okay." And then, I don't know, they were there for a couple of days. We were walking, we've just been around in Paris for a couple of days. Thomas and Guy were there, just there, quiet guys in the background. And then we sat down and we listened to the first tracks and Daft Punk. I remember being in someone's flat in, in Paris and we were sitting and they put the music on and we were like, oh, man. If you know what Daft Punk do now, which is very disco-orientated and commercial, this was a million miles away from it because it was very industrial sounding techno I mean the only thing I can really you know compare it to nowadays would be something like Blawen or that kind of thing it had this real industrial sound about it and we thought the attitude and the tracks alone made us just want to sign those tracks and uh, Alive the track which made it onto the Homework album was, was the only thing that you could really think sounded like Daft Punk of the later years but we just knew that the tracks were raw and when we heard the tracks we were blown away by them and you followed that record up with one with Defunk and Rollin' and Scratching yeah, on it as yeah, well, didn't you? Yeah. And did they come and play in, in Glasgow with you guys at any point? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's this is the funny thing, because everybody has this thing with, like, <laughs> where uh, Daft Punk played at our club first and Daft, yeah, but they came, they played for us a couple of times. 
in Glasgow as DJs. And then they came across and we used to do these parties called Never Get Out the Boat on this on the Renfrew Ferry, which is like a, an old disused car ferry on, on the river. And they came down and did a live set on that. And that was the first ever live set. And then they came back and did the Daft Mix which was when they started to do all the other UK stuff. So they'd been over to Glasgow and stayed in the flat and, you know, hung out and, you know. And we'd been over to Paris to hang out with them. We'd went to, they used to have this studio, which was in the old uh, Asterix de Gaulle, where they used to make the cartoons, Asterix de Gaulle. It was like an old 70s studio, you know, and, and they used to go up there with all their pals and hang out and, you know, listen to like Paul Johnson records and, you know, stuff like that. And the relationship kind of continued because you were with Virgin in putting out homework as well, their, their debut album? Yeah, we did. And it, that was something that the guys didn't really have to do. I think Thomas's dad was in, in the music industry. He was a disco producer of sorts, and he was very instrumental in, in, in shaping their commercial career. I, I think they always wanted to move to a bigger lab, label situation. We wanted to keep them, of course, but it was very difficult. It's very difficult to compete. And fair credit to them, they they made sure that Soma were involved in the whole process. It was a very smooth transition. And they, you know, the Soma logos actually on the, the first record and we got the gold discs and we got a, a, not a huge advance, but seemed to us at the time like a, a, like a huge advance, but probably wasn't in real terms that great an advance, but we got an advance for it. And we were happy with that. I think it was. It was. It, it, like I said, they didn't have to do that. And was it around this point that you guys started playing at the Arches for the for the pressure night? Yeah, it actually started. Um, there was the the year of culture in 1990, and uh, this space called the Arches had been used for an exhibition about Glasgow, and they spent a rather large sum of money uh, renovating it and when it came to the end of the year they did they just didn't know what to do with the space they weren't sure and um, a non-profit making kind of charity charitable uh, theatre had started up there and they were facing all kinds of problems financially and putting things on and a chap we'd kind of worked with on various other projects approached us and asked us you know there's this space it's not being used would you be interested in maybe um running a night there and and we took on the friday night and it was actually just called slam at that point and that ran for i think about eight years is that right about is it six eight yeah, a long time anyway and uh, it was just myself and stuart on a Friday night, one of the arches is it's kind of like a modular club. It's it's got three or four kind of different arches, but at that point, the, some of the back arches hadn't been kind of renovated kind of properly, so it wasn't really the size of club that it is now. It was a, a you know one arch, two arches and a and a bar, and there was about I would imagine eight 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 hundred to a thousand people there every every Friday, and that run as I said I think for about six or eight years with just myself and Stuart. We got to the point that obviously the scene was growing and we wanted to kind of bring artists from, from other parts of the world across and so by this time the other parts of the arches had, had opened up and so we had the uh, ability to be able to kind of bring more people in and open up kind of different stages and, and pressure was very much a kind of just a graduation to that and then to be able to put on more than one stage and, and bring people obviously that we were meeting on our travels and, and people whose music we were, were playing a lot of and bring them to Glasgow for our crowd to kind of see and so the crowd grew from 800 to 1000 on a Friday to you know sometimes upwards of 2500 as we sometimes get for for some of the gigs today. 
I guess it seems like a nice balance to have in terms of two residencies, one at the at the sub club, a smaller, yeah. more intimate venue, and then being able to, to really go for it at the Arches. Was that something that you enjoyed? Could you play different tunes at, diff- at the different nights? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we, we never really plan. I think we always have this thing where we really put a high... A high price on on, on doing a warm up, you know. Not too many people. It's a lot. It's a bit of a lost art, and it's something that we always enjoy. Like, like even at Fabric, we they always afford us like a four or five hour set. We start room two, we build it up, and you know. So there's very much two sides to slam. It's the the deep pulsating warm up music into the throbbing techno. So <laughs> you know, which um, I love the un- uncompromising nature of that as well. The sub club. It, it, we st- yeah, it's deeper. We play much deeper in there than we do in the arches. The arches is a, a it's a big room, big club, so we we tend to uh, play a, a little bit harder in there. You mentioned fabric there as well. Um, when did your relationship with with that club begin? I guess it's about ten years ago now. We went in there as, as as clubbers a couple of times, and then we met the people who were running it, and then we just started to play there naturally and. And then we did the mix for Fabric, and then we've been regular guests ever since, you know, two or three times a year. It feels like another sub club or another Arches. It, it definitely feels like our third spiritual home. And it's commendable there because the staff that they've had, a lot of the people from day one are still the same people. So, I mean, that, that speaks volumes for me. At what point in your DJing careers did you introduce the, the four deck setup? Very recently. It's it's a very recent thing the four deck setup. Um, we had we just what's great about it is that none of us really know what we're we're gonna do. It's it's a total blind uh, leap of faith, and we just get in and we do our thing. and And, and I love that. I love that whole uh, experimental kind of read the crowd, feed off each other. You know. Because we used to play separate and then we thought, wait a minute, this is just, there's something not quite right about this. We need to have that energy. We need to get that energy and we need, we need to, you know, bounce off each other and feed off each other and feed off the crowd, you know, so it works so much better that way. And prior to that, you said you would, you would just sort of take it in turns to, to spin or how, how did it work? Yeah, prior to that, we, we would do usually kind of like a half hour each depending on how long the night was and so you know sometimes in the sub club will one person won't be there and so you maybe do a two-hour set yourself but most of the time now at like the, the bigger gigs and festivals and stuff like that we we tend to do back to back and as Stuart says it, it never kind of it's never the same twice <laughs> it's always changing it's a very liquid form of, of kind of presenting the sound of slam when people think of Slam, they associate you guys with Sub Club, with the Archers, but there's also your Tea in the Park residency. When when did that begin? Was it late 90s? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, we got asked to DJ at, I think it would have been a third or fourth Tea in the Park, which was then at, at a site just outside of Glasgow in Hamilton, Strathclyde Park. And uh, that's right, Joe Strummer was there. And, and we were guests much like everyone else that was there and we met the 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 chap that was kind of running it and and he said you know how did that go for you and and we were just a bit bullshit and said well we thought we thought it could go a lot better if you had someone that knew what they were doing involved in the programming and so it was a bit like so you think you could do better and 
we were just like, yeah, we think we can. So we kind of blagged our way onto the Tea, Park, Tea in the Park roster. And I think this is the 18th year, I think we've been doing it. Is that right? Yeah. And it, it just grows and grows every year. You know, it's, it's been, a, it's been a, a real kind of monster. I think it's really shaped the sound and of what people listen to in Scotland as well, because we've managed to kind of, you know, obviously there's some compromises we make, but as you know, as a whole, it's a pretty underground lineup for a festival every year. It's probably the reason why techno and good quality house is, is as big as it is in Scotland. You know, people seem to love it because of Tea in the Park. Just to to get a bit of an idea, how many people fit in the tent? What's the capacity? Well, it's a Around ten thousand people, you know, and and there must have been some some great me- memories from from hosting that tent. Every year is is incredible. It's on the radar for people to play. Everybody wants to play for people from Sven Vaith to Richie Horton, you know, as a regular guest to you know old school people like Green Velvet and Dave Clark, and you know, it's awesome. Well, know? I'm looking at the the lineup for for this year, and you've got you know Sven. As, as you mentioned, guys like Levon Vincent, Carl uh, yeah. Craig, yeah. Julia Bashmore, Kerry Chandler, yeah. Factory Floor, and then yeah, others like Dave Clark's playing. Yeah. Like you said, there's not much compromise there in terms of the, the quality of the lineup. How hands on are you with the curation? Very much f- full on, hands on with it. You know, it's uh, uh, Dave Clark and ourselves that we sit around and uh, first of all find out who's available. And we have a wish list of who we want. And usually not too many people say no, which which is nice, you know. I think it's it's definitely been put on, on the map as somewhere that you should play. If you're going to do one gig in Scotland in the summer, it has to be the slam tent at Tea in the Park. So. And you also um, go to quite uh, long efforts to, to make sure it's looking nice as well in terms of like last year you decked it out in a kind of Far Eastern style. Is that right? Yeah, well, we have, um, the, first of all, Dave Pringle doing the sound. He's been a guy who's worked for, with us for, you know, since we started, since we started the arches, and a guy called Scott McDonald who also is doing all the visuals uh, for us. So yeah, we do try and struggle every year to get the budget to, to do it. We're, last year we had like a video wall, which was amazing. So we upped that. Yeah, bigger this year. Yeah, we've been pushing for this kind of video wall for a number of years, and budgets didn't quite stretch to it. Uh, but last year we managed to to get it passed, and uh, it's just a huge kind of multiple kind of a video screen, uh, which is bigger again this year. I'm glad to say. So, um, you know, Scott McDonald's over the moon now. Our uh, visuals guy, and really, at the end of the day, once you put the stage and the sound system in, any money that's left gets kind of poured into the the lights and the visuals. But the, yeah, as, as Stuart says, the, the tent is like ten thousand, twelve thousand people. It's it's it used to run just on the the Saturday and Sunday, but uh, it's now become so popular that it runs you know Thursday and Friday as well. So um, there's even more people to kind of find to fill these spots and. And as, as, as we said, usually you don't get too many no's. I mean, beyond Tea in the Park, you guys have, I guess, built a, a really good brand or, or business out of Slam and, and Soma. At, at what point did you come to think of, you know, DJing and production as a, as a career? Still doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the odd sort of kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's been a very organic process. I mean, I mean it's, I think first and foremost... You have to have a real passion for what you do. And then I think all these other things naturally fall into place. 
the reason we were doing the slant empty in the park is because we're passionate about the music the reason we're doing well with the label is because we're you know we're concentrating on the a r we're finding the right artists the right artists are gravitating towards us you can't sit down and write a plan for that you just have to let that you just really have to let that happen organically and we never really thought about djing as a career it was always a passionate it was always our love for the music we've never thought about making money from it and i guess it's why we're still around and still doing it after all this time is because we have that commitment to it and as as well as you guys being the the face of slam and and so like you've mentioned that before there's there's people behind the scenes as well working yeah. we've always had a great team it's always been about the great team it's so much especially we've got a great team with Darren there with Glenn who we mentioned earlier everyone in the office is great and everyone shares the passion you know so it's really about that 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 teamwork from Scott McDonald from you know Dave Pringle Everybody we involve ourselves with, like I mentioned with Fabric earlier, they've been with us for a long time. So we've had we've got that really solid team in place. There's Slam events, there's Slam Radio, Slam TV. Just yeah. tell me a bit about the the ideas behind each of each of well, those. Well, Slam Radio, again, we just really felt there was like a passion for techno, and there was loads of great artists out there, but there wasn't really a, a podcast to represent that kind of music it was more kind of Ibiza techno or this and this and that we didn't really hear that underground music you know people like FaZe and you know uh, the Bergain guys Norman Nodge and people like that are, are kind of regular guests and we just wanted to do something that had a bit of attitude and that was that was different and sort of reflected what we the kind of music first and foremost that we were really passionate and we were, we were into and we didn't really know how it was going to go but it's it's gone really really well actually it's it's found a real it's found a real audience and i think it's because it it doesn't to make too many compromises again and it does have quite a strong remit you know and a strong musical identity and can you tell me the idea behind soma tv Soma TV is just a little bit of a hobby. We have this, <laughs> we have a space in the Soma office, which just—it's like a club room. It's like we we actually use it for an after hours. We'll have like pressure on, like last year was until five in the morning, and then everybody would fire in there, and we'd have like little after parties in there. And then because we're working with uh, we're working for, with a guy called Darren from EQ TV, he says Let, well, let's try let's try and do something. So some of the guests would come up, some of the underground guys for the label that didn't have a voice, you know. We thought it'd be a great idea just to try and you know video the, video them and you know put them out there and see what happens, you know. Really interesting project of you guys was the Soma School. When did that start? Uh, Soma School started probably about ten years ago, and the idea behind it was to to inform people there were various different kind of careers to be had in music other than just being a musician and trying to bring them all together over a couple of days involve kind of software companies that produce kind of music software PRS you know uh, obviously in jobs in, in, in the side of uh, publishing and stuff like that uh, jobs for tour management you know the presentation of kind of live music and 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 really to bring that all together under kind of one umbrella uh, to inform people and maybe you know make them think about having a career in kind of music we definitely found that you know as we were coming up and learning the the, the ropes of an independent kind of record label these were things that we kind of learnt that we were totally unaware of that you had to have some form of kind of knowledge 
knowledge about. And yeah, it was it was just to kind of bring them all together in in a number of days to to allow people to make it kind of informed choices uh, about kind of careers in music at the moment it's now it's manifested itself in a in a kind of music production course with a chap called simon stokes who's uh, an accredited ableton uh, tutor and uh, he's running it as a, a kind of production course which is doing fantastically well so that that's kind of teaching uh, lots of young people you know their their first kind of steps into kind of music production, but um, the, the actual kind of three D kind of affair has been put on a, on a little bit of a kind of a hold at the moment for one reason or another. But there are kind of plans in the future to start that up again. In the the early days, you guys received some support from the Scottish authorities for for starting up the school. Are, are they still on board? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so. Soma in 2014, can you describe what the, the setup is like behind the scenes now and what kind of health the label's in? It's in a really good state just now. We're signing new people like Charles Fenkler from France, you know, Louis Fauci, Roberto Clemente from Italy. We have a, a really solid core artist base and we're also, you know, um, you know, people like FaZe doing remixes and... You know, our new album's coming up. It's a really exciting time. We're really proud of the music that we're putting out right now. It's it's really solid. You just put out the 400th record on the label. Yes. Did at any point you think you'd get to release number 400? I didn't think we'd get to number four. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, getting to 400's an achievement for sure, you know. And, and I think it's it just shows you how much commitment we have that we're still here after this time and a lot of labels kind of fall by the wayside or lose focus and you know I'm not saying we've always been 100% focused all the time but we, we certainly have been passionate about it and I think that's what's what's seen it through for all this time There's a record on the cards from Kevin Saunderson's son is that right? Dante's already kind of done uh, a collaboration with a chap called Heron from Germany. So he's already had a, a track out there on Soma. But uh, I think Dante's very kind of busy with KMS at the moment and, and his own kind of thing. So maybe that's something we'll renew in the future. Is that a bit scary that... Kevin Saunders' son is releasing. <laughs> well, we've met Kevin many times. I and met Kevin Saunders' son years ago at uh, Detroit, you know, and he was just like a little boy, a uh, little boy in a KMS t-shirt that was like the KMS t-shirt was massive and it was just a little, little boy. In it. And then all of a sudden he's DJing and making it. I think it's great though. I think it's great. It's funny how Dante sounds more like Kevin Saunders than Kevin Saunders sounds like Kevin Saunders. You know, he's really kind of adopted that sound, doesn't he? And of course, Kevin Saunders' wife, Anne, sang on one of our albums you know so yeah there's a family connection there and can we expect any other slam affiliated offspring on Soma anytime soon <laughs> um well you have to wait a few years for that you know but yeah we, we're just about to drop our new album reverse proceed which is coming out in the, at the end of october and we've kind of decided to take a bit of a you know step back we, we came across this sequencer called Circlon sequencer we'd heard a lot of good things about it and then we discovered the guy only lived like you know 10 minutes up the road so we tracked it down and, and it's basically an old school step sequencer so we're using that in conjunction with modular synth and we're trying to find a way of I guess there was a lot of electronic music around that was that had this sitting at a computer clicking stuff or you know we, in many ways we wanted something to limit our options because it was infinite ways you can make music on a computer so we had to kind of decide to have this 
basic setup and uh, make music that somehow had that human approach but didn't wasn't sterile. So we we you know lots of tweaking on the modulus and lots of you know live kind of tweaking on the circle on sequencer. So the whole album is based around sequences. Every track has a sequence of, of some form, you know. We've just finished that and that's just about to, that'll come out later in the year. In terms of process, it sounds like a more experimental approach. Is that translating to the actual sound of the record? Well, there isn't a kick drum until about 25 minutes. It starts very ambient and the whole process of the album is, I think we came across, there was a lot of techno albums that had like, We've done a bunch of big club tracks and we'll let's make a couple of ambient tracks or something as an afterthought. And so the way we approached this one was that we we decided to make it like a journey. And it sounds like a cliche, but we started with very, very ambient soundscapes and then slowly built it up, almost like a DJ set. And it's a continuous album. There's no breaks. It morphs in and out of it's not continuous beat wise but it certainly flows that way and for the hour and 10 minutes it doesn't break it just builds slowly and builds up to a crescendo sounds like new ground for you guys very much so but then I mean we haven't done an album in seven years but it's such a daunting process doing one you know that you can tell why most artists don't and we get bored we just didn't want to do we didn't want to do another bog standard record I mean it's been so many of those records around that we just we needed something that was quite strong conceptually and we needed to do something that we felt would excite us and give us a vibe to work with because sitting at the computer all day just tweaking things wasn't something that was exciting us we made a pressure funk album in 1999 using the 909 external instrument trigger and we just kind of thought it'd be great to get back to have that energy. But with all the technology you have now, you know, you can go back, but you can produce it so much better. You can record these live takes, you can edit them, you can do all kinds of things that you couldn't do back then. And do you guys still listen to, to promos that get sent through? Is that still part of your... Or of your does. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? There's certain companies that are better, you have a better track record. I'm not going to say which ones, but that have a better... There's certain things that come through that I know that are not going to be... Again, it's about limitation. There has to be some form of limitation because there's so many releases, there's so many different types of record coming out. It'd be be great to be broad-minded, but, you know, sometimes you have to specialise a little bit and, you know... And how do you guys decide if something's right for Soma? Again, it's a very kind of organic decision. Um, usually there's a, 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 a reasonable amount of consensus on, you know, what is good and what, and what we like. It, extraordinary, actually, considering a lot of stuff gets sent in. I mean, that, that happened very early with Soma. We were getting kind of records from Kazakhstan and the southern tip of Argentina and just Pacific Islands you'd never heard of. So the label had become kind of reasonably global quite quite quickly. And it's still the same today. We receive music from all corners of, of the globe but to be fair most of it is is sent in hope I, I don't think the people necessarily you know know what the record label's about they've done a tune and they, they just want to send it so there is a, a form of kind of filtering at the office where if things are really just way wide of the mark we'll probably never get to hear them and of course you know myself and Stuart will speak to people that we meet on the road or, or people's music that we're into and we'll bring it to the label but as I said as usually there is a form of filtering and you know every every five six weeks we'll sit down with other chaps 
at Soma and we'll listen through quite a large number of kind of tunes and as I said when when consensus is kind of struck that's when someone moves forward to having a release. You guys have been working in dance music for 25 plus years what still still drives you to to get out there to DJ to perform to release records? Just like the same same drivers has forced us into asking for our first night. You know, it's just a, a love of kind of new music. Always looking over the brow of the hill, trying to find uh, something that sounds fresh, something that kind of touches you. That, in all essence, is very hard to put into words. What it is that you know when you hear a record are the kind of driving factors as to move you to, to kind of actually play it or, you know, even further actually put it out on your record label. You know, that that, that is a very kind of organic and kind of personal thing. And I, I can't really put it into words what it is about a record that, you know, you instantly kind of makes you like it. But it's still the same as it was then. And as we were alluding to earlier on, it's we've never seen this as a business. We've never seen it as a, as a way of kind of making money. It's something that you, you love doing and you don't see any kind of end to the, the journey. You know, beyond releasing the album in October, what's the plan for the label? Where do you see it in, in the future? The plan is to not make any plans, really, <laughs> uh, like, we've, like we've always done. I think it's just release great music that we believe in and carry on doing that and that's all we can that's all we can hope for it's just bring new music to the people music that we believe in music that symbiotic with with our dj performances that's all we can hope for there's never been a great plan there's never been any scheme it's just always been very organic you guys mentioned enjoying playing both the warm-up set and a peak time set these days do you turn tend to sort of gravitate towards one or the other no usually um you know if we do fabric then yeah the guys at fabric afford us a four or five hour set so you can tell the full story sometimes at the sub club we'll allow ourselves you know two or three hours at the beginning so so that affords us that kind of crossing musical genres when you tend to travel you're usually on for an hour and a half two hours in the middle of a night peak time and so you don't always get the, the chance to tell the story that you would like to. I mean, that's it's still, you know, great to, to play the kind of the heavier side of things that, that we love. But um, when we were kind of, you know, starting in the game, it was it was very much about embracing lots of different kind of genres of music. And so we still really enjoy telling that story, you know, from the very beginning of a night right through towards towards the end where it gets kind of heavier. And it obviously gives you a lot more work. You've got to listen to a lot more kind of music to find, but uh, it's something we've always done. It's a process, isn't it? You know, just having that release of you know. So we might start with like dub reggae or ambient stuff, and then build it up, and it's just very natural. I I really don't understand people who decide to play banging music in a club and you know I, I like the idea of if you come in just easing into the night if there's nobody around if there's like 10 people in the club and there's like the music like doof, 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 it, it's, it just makes so much more sense to have like some soundscapey stuff and then it just it just just reading that night just creating that night and there's nothing better to, to start with almost nothing and then end up with like a really packed dance floor as a DJ that's really really rewarding there's an art to that and I guess in terms of being, I guess, students of, of DJing, did you find yourselves being able to read a crowd better and better as time went on? I think having the residences has definitely helped that. I think always the, the people who go on to become the best DJs are people who have been residents at clubs. You can really, you can really feel that with, you know, 
even people like Ricardo Villalobos or you know Craig Richards or you know all the, all these people have been residents you know Ben Clark and Norman Nodge and these guys and yeah they've all had this thing they understand how to let it go into full gear or when to take it back or when to you know and that that is in itself is is what I think DJing's all about it's when to press the right buttons you know at the right time and these days Glasgow has a reputation for having some of the best party atmospheres, especially through the through the sub club. When did you start to see that um, atmosphere and, and that kind of scene develop? The atmosphere was there right from the beginning, right from day dot. It was, people just go out with the attitude of having a good time there. It's a very weekend orientated city. People live for the weekend. It's a working class industrial town and people, when they go out at the weekend, let their hair down. You know, it's as simple as that. It just has that instant energy. And from the very beginning, people people just took to it.